This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy from Westwards. And today I am talking to James Knight, who has been a guest of ours in the past and is a good friend of Westwards. How are we, James? You're calling from Gunnedah, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> I am indeed. It's, we've had a bit of rain. In Mum's rain gauge, we had 18 millimetres overnight, and that's lovely sound to hear rain on it. Yeah, I was driving over from Tamworth to Gunnedah only recently, this afternoon and the gullies are absolutely gushing with water and it's a it's a beautiful sight at this time of year. James, before we get into it, I must apologize if you hear a dog called Wish, a stumpy-tailed cattle dog, thumping every now and again because um it's mum's dog and Wish wants to be involved in the podcast. Oh, that, so that's fine. That. Dogs are always welcome. I mean, there's nothing much more um country than rain on the roof and a dog barking at your heels, is there really? Absolutely. What do they say about country music songs? You normally base it around either. <laughs> if you play it backwards, your dog comes back and your wife comes back and your car starts, is that? That's exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely. Play it backwards and reverse it when you go the other way. Yeah, Terrific. pick up, pick up truck. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Gunnada, when you and I were in Gunnada together um, a couple of years back, it was in the middle of that drought. And I, I remember yeah. I, I, I said to you that, you know, I'm a country boy myself. I was born in Trundle and, you know, driving through that, area between the airport out to Gunnedah, it was like a nuclear bomb had gone off out there. It was really quite extraordinary, wasn't it? You know, it's funny, and I wish, it's, when I talk in schools, it really intrigues me how country kids know quite a bit about the city, but quite often city kids don't much about the country, and I think it's a real pity that they don't because they hear of a word such as drought and it doesn't mean much to them, but as you say, when you come out and actually see it and feel it, and you talk with the people, it can be quite overwhelming. And, yeah, thankfully, we're in a pretty good season at the moment. But having said that, those terrible mises, the mice are causing a problem in The felt highway or something like that. Well, I'll tell you, it puts a new, new interpretation on pelting down the road because really? at night when the mice come out, it is literally squash, squash, squash. As you're driving along, as these little fur balls run across the road, and you are literally pelting down the road, no matter what pace you're going at. <laughs> well, um, thanks for joining us today. We're, I thought it'd be interesting to have a chat with you about a project that we did quite recently, where you and I—I I mean, I was there really to press the record button, but you did the interviewing—and we worked with Mecca, which is the Mount Druitt Ethnic Communities Agency in Mount Druitt, uh, to put together some postcards based around the stories of. It was six people in the end, it wasn't, it was five interviews, but one of them was a couple, so six people. Yep. And yep. then you divine those hour-long, in most cases, interviews down to two, two separate postcards and a, and a strap line. Um, and these people were all refugees uh, who had come to Australia from places like Iraq, Syria and Ethiopia and Kenya. Uh, yeah, I think that was, that was all of them. Um, and so the idea was that we, um, we turned those into punchy little stories that would represent something to do with the refugee experience without telling the whole story. Mm. And um, I think anyone who has anything to do with storytelling soon realises that 
brevity is often far more powerful than, than going on. Mm. So I guess what I wanted to talk to you a day about was how, how you took an hour's worth of recorded interview and divined it down into those very short pieces that were actually very powerful. Um, what, what were the cues you were looking for? What were the, the, the little flags you were seeking, the things that you thought you could grab onto to turn that into a, um, a, a story? Keeping in mind, sorry, I'm speaking of brevity now I'm going on, but you know, for anyone not, who doesn't know your work, James, you were a sports journalist originally, now you're a biographer and a nonfiction writer and a, and a radio um, presenter. So what, was, what were you looking for when you started that, that project? Because you had no other guidelines other than that, really. Yeah, thank you for giving me such an open canvas to work with with this. And you and I sat in the same room for a whole Sunday afternoon at Mecca doing these. And before we get into that, I think you and I were both overwhelmed by what we heard from Abula, Targreed, Mustafa, Rosemary, Gina and Zainab. And the reason why we were overwhelmed was because it was a privilege to listen. Hmm. And to answer your question, probably as much as anything, it's about connection. Stories connect us. I'm preaching to the converted with you, James, but they do connect us and they can connect us in very human ways. So simplicity is a wonderful way to connect. And I think quite often with writing, when we hear some people say, we need complex sentences and we long need flowery language and we need this and we need that. When we keep it simple, mm. we really can understand the message if there is a message and there doesn't have to be a message, but we can understand it better. So I tried to strip it back a bit and look for points that would give connection with the, the listener or the, or the reader. And I look at, let's take, for example, Gina, mm. Gina from Aleppo. And my goodness, what she and her family her husband, a pharmacist, and three children, or three young adults now, would have seen in Aleppo, for those who aren't aware of what has happened in Aleppo, mm. look it up. Yeah, just go and Google Aleppo 2020 and, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you can't, and as I say, we're in this room, just the three of us, James, listening to Gina. And the connection came through something we could all identify with, and that's, Peppa Pig. <laughs> so that was that was quite the moment. Do you want to just let us know how that went down? Because um, if you listen to the podcast, you can hear me giggling in the background because that really that really tickled me. How did it go again? It was because we we're actually talking before the recording, and then because Gina before the recording actually gave me something she'd written out and it told about how they got here and the family. And then I said, oh, she said, do you want me to read this or do you want to read it? What do we want to do? And we had a bit of a question about it. And through that question and answer, we found out that she actually didn't know much English before she came out. And when she came out here, one of the tools she used after going to TAFE, and she found that difficult because most of the people there actually spoke in their mother languages, particularly Arabic, uh, to learn English. And she wanted to learn English and throw herself right in. Mm. and through another friend, she discovered Peppa Pig and other YouTube videos and apps. And if anyone who has listened to Peppa Pig and how simply beautiful it is, mm. Daddy is driving his car. Where is he going? He's taking Mama Pig and George Pig and Peppa Pig 
to a picnic. And imagine a woman who's been through what she has seen, sitting watching Peppa Pig to learn Daddy is driving a car up a hill. And it's kind of cute, but it's at the same time, it's there's there's a certain level of pathos to that story, isn't there? That you, you yeah. resort to a children's show to learn the language that you're you're trying to navigate the world in now. Absolutely. But for Gina, it gives her connection with the world she's entering. And we all know we need language. Language is the foundation of communication in so many civilizations in so many ways. And she's using a children's cartoon to take a step into a new world. And once again, it was humbling to be in that room. And so I looked for across all the stories, keep them simple, look for the connection. And even if we can't find the connection, keep them so simple that we can still in a way, relate to them. I look at um, Mustafa and Tugrid from mm. Iraq, spent their whole lives in Baghdad. Of course, we know the history of Baghdad and Saddam Hussein and um, sanctions against Iraq going back to the 1990s and Mustafa working over there in a bank. A job that we could relate to here. Imagine walk, working in a bank and one day people say to you, I want a loan. If you don't give me the loan, I know where your family lives. I know where your children go to school. And as Mustafa said himself, they will kill you. Mm. Going the to full, a bank. The full force of the regime, be, full force of the regime behind them as well. Yeah, mm. and it's something we can still connect to. And I could ask anyone from an everyday existence in Australia, whatever that may be, but to be able to go, okay, I'm going to work today, and put yourself in that man's shoes, change the context, which is one of the most important words whenever we tell a story, change the context and imagine how you would feel and what you would do. So just looking for that connection point is, is, is what I began as a, as, as a launching pad, James. So you'd be talking about things like family, um, security, the idea of home, all these universal kinds of things. Which, which ones really jumped out at you the most? They all did in their different ways, like Zainab. And very early on, she just mentioned the word education. Mm. And it became a recurring theme. I have to teach myself more. So she's done yoga. She's done various courses through tech, and she's always learning. She's at UWS. The children have gone to university. Education, education, education. And because she said, I think from memory, you others respect you when you're educated and you respect yourself. And we all know about education. We all want to better ourselves in various ways. So that was one that really tweaked with me. Rosemary from Kenya. My goodness, what a powerful story. Oh. A universal theme for her was music. And Rosemary's background is she suffered some domestic violence and abuse in Kenya, among a few other things that happened to her. And she said herself that she would not have got through those moments if she didn't turn to song. And we had that beautiful moment where she even sang to us Amazing Grace. <laughs> we all connected. James, you know as well as anyone, you're the muse between us, where music can take you. I might ask you right now, I mean, where does music take you? Because if you imagine it, 
how powerful it was for Rosemary to use music, Amazing Grace, to take her out of the situation she is in. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, music, I'm really interested in this idea that uh, um, that certain chord progressions can can speak to us in a particular way. There's something called a pedal note where you, you hold the root note of a chord and then you move through the other chords in the progression, but you hold that note. And there's something about that that really resonates with us. And I don't know, some, one day somebody's going to do a PhD into this, but they're going to work out why it is that this particular chord progression gives you this incredible sense of longing, but it's also got beauty attached to it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it is really interesting, isn't it, that, that music the – other, the other powerful thing that music does, I suppose, is um, I know that Catherine Jinks does a, a writing workshop where she uses pieces of music as the soundtrack, if you like, to the writing that the young people do. Then they, they write the whatever is inspired, what inspires them from that music, whatever scene they see or whatever. And she, when she does this in her practice, then she, when she's rewriting that scene she, or editing it, she goes back and puts the same music on and it throws them straight back – into there and it does have an interesting way of getting in there but it it's also it's a way of it's a fun it's a bit like well i was gonna say it's a bit like food but it's actually i was gonna say it's like food in the sense that we we need it and it sustains us but it also brings us together but the, the thing about music i suppose is that it also sometimes you need it to go into yourself and be meditative and be alone and survive being alone but sometimes we use it as a as a social impetus as well. So yeah, it is, it is interesting, isn't it? That she, she went back to music and then she, yeah, she sang for us, which was um, by her own admission. She said, I, I, I'm not a good singer. And then she sang, it was quite, quite lovely. You know, it's, as I say, again, a privilege. And what does she do now? She is one of many things. She does incredible work in Western Sydney through Parramatta police, looking for domestic, helping domestic violence victims and helping them feeling less lonely. Mm, it's a loneliness that she talked about, wasn't it, really? Oh, it was just, it was humbling to hear what she does. And one of the beautiful things she does is 15 years ago when she established this African dinner dance for women so yeah. they could all come together and share their stories. And I think it is absolutely wonderful that this year, the celebration of music and bringing those women together, it doesn't matter what race, culture or creed, she's bringing, wants everyone inviting everyone from across the landscape, the cultural landscape to come. And I think it's just, once again, the music, the power, and we go back to the moment she had with Amazing Grace, and then she's giving other people the opportunity to find comfort with other people through music and dance. And that's, to me, dance, music, it's one of the true international cultural activities that acts as the most powerful social tool. Sport is another one. If you look at others, I think, I mean, Ebola. Ebola was, he, he imprisoned in Ethiopia. Gambella came from um, West Ethiopia, Anuak people. He said something that it was a phrase that turned me to him. Voice for the voiceless. And from a young age, he felt it was his, it was as though he'd been struck by a bolt of lightning and this is what you're meant to do, to help people who can't speak up for themselves. And it got him in a lot of trouble. It imprisoned him in Ethiopia for five years. And even when he was released, they wanted to imprison him again. He's, there were three attempts on his life. 
And yet, it's the journey he's taken that's allowed him to get where he is today. And where is he today? In Australia, wanting to help people who don't necessarily have a voice. And he's driven by that. Yeah, the, the, interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing with Buller, I think, was that, um, I mean, you're talking about identifying that he, he is he sees his mission as being the voice for the voiceless. But the thing that I think both of us grabbed onto as, as he said it, as the, the, as the moment that was going to catch the attention of the reader was when he said, what he said about his daughter when he came out of prison. Yeah. Can you you tell us what that was? He had been in prison for, as I said, five years. And when he came out, his daughter ran away from him. I think she was six or something, wasn't she? she Yeah. She yeah. ran away crying, yeah. Yeah, you're a stranger. Run away from the stranger. Be careful of the stranger. And it actually, that really resonated with me on a very personal level because I've been to Ethiopia and I've worked uh, as in a community capacity in Ethiopia. And one of the dearest people I know on the face of this planet is a man who I spent some time with. And he was imprisoned for quite a long time I think it was something like 10 years in Ethiopia when he went in his wife was pregnant he did not meet his son until after he was released from prison wow when wow. I, mean, I, I think it's a little bit like um, I mean this is a false equivalency I know I, I wouldn't even pretend that it's the same thing but you and I have both traveled a lot for work you know for speaking and so forth and can you imagine that's what I did immediately. I internalised this and thought, if I came back from a week away and my my young child didn't know me, I'd be I'd be starting to think, well, maybe I should, I need to reconsider how I'm spending my life if my kid forgets me. Yeah. But Abula didn't get a choice in that, did he? No, no, it was taken away from him, and it's one of the greatest gifts you can have being a parent, isn't it? Mm. So Mostly. when a child, <laughs> yeah, well, when when a child is born, so is a parent. Mm. Um. And a bullet's connection came from the fact that, yeah, voice for the voiceless. I, I just keep coming back. Maybe it's the writer in me thinking, but it, it is so powerful and we need people like that across the planet because that's how we learn from each other and we do support people who do need a hand. And he himself needed a hand hmm. and yet he could have rested on on his history and moved on from that when he came to Australia, but he wants to give back. Well, I, I said to him in the background, I don't know if it, if it turned up on the actual recording, but I said to him at some point, "Did you, you'd be forgiven for going, um, look, I, I spent all this time away from my kids. My kid didn't know me. Now that I'm back with them, I'm going to do, do nothing but take my kids to school, pick my kids up and spend every available minute with them. And yeah. yet he's still going on with this kind of this mission. I mean, what does that say about him? Yeah, and it's interesting about that because I remember that you're asking him about balance. Mm-hmm. And you look at it in the connection or the context of our own lives where we're always seeking that balance about how much for work, how much for play, how much family time. And then again, you apply it in the context of Ebola and what he's been through, what he's seen, the pain and anguish and torment he's been through. And he's still finding balance, but he's... Yeah, it's. I'm probably not quite sure what I want to say, but somewhere in there, there's the fact that here's a man who doesn't have to give anyone anything to anyone, mm. and yet he still wants to do it because he's human and 
and that's who he wants to be. So when when you were listening to them speak and you were trying to find uh, find that little chink in the armour, if you like that, or that thread that you could grab and pull and unravel and, mm. and get into the story, how much were you thinking about the story as an entity in itself and how much were you thinking about the impact that this story would have on the audience because you don't know who the audience is it's a no anyone could pick this card up um what 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 was your thinking as that was going on once again keep it looks like james's zoom link has gone dead but i think what he's going to say was once again keep it simple that's all we have for you because our guest has um disappeared into the ether but i really hope that you enjoyed that chat with James Knight. Uh, if you'd like to go to westwords.com.au, you can find the postcard project on there and you can see the cards that he was talking about and hear, listen to the podcast themselves. But uh, until next time, happy creating and we'll talk again soon.